Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. On today's episode, the curious case of the small sample size overreaction. I am always stunned by how I can be completely convinced of something and then in a short period of time gravitate towards the opposite side. This happens a lot especially for me within the world of sports, the area that I pay the closest attention to. And I always am kind of stunned, even though in the back of my mind, I'm prepared for it. I know that the world is filled with ambiguity and what seems very uh, clear and truthful one day might not be the next day. I almost want to start keeping a sports journal just as a thought exercise, just as a way to remind myself of the ambiguous nature of things where every day I write down the 10 truths that I'm completely convinced of on that particular day and how they pertain to sports. The 10 things that if you come to me on that given day that I say, no matter what happens this year, I'm quite confident these will be true a year from now. To do that every single day, it'd be incredibly interesting and it would be incredibly revealing to go through that after a year's time just as a way to remind myself that, oh, I follow this stuff really, really closely, and I'm convinced of a lot of things. And more times than not, those things probably don't turn out to be true, at least in the way that I think that they are. Uh, it, it would give that comprehension of how quickly things change in general, a fact that I do believe we are aware of just in life. But sometimes it's harder for my brain to process that within the realm of sports because I'm in it every day and I feel so well-versed about the subjects that I go, no, 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 I'm, I'm the big knowledgeable library brain and I know exactly what's going on. And as it turns out, that stuff is just really hard to predict. Um, th there's kind of a, a madness and an overreaction to anything that happens in sports, but, but really when you distill it down into these smaller sample sizes, whether that's our reactions and discussions about individual games or a week or a month or, or any of this stuff that if you're able to step back and look at it logically, you go, this is a really small amount of information. And even the information we have, it's kind of ambiguous and hard to sort through. I think back to week one of the NFL season and Green Bay plays the Saints and Green Bay gets pounded. They look atrocious in all phases of the game. And, you know, because we, we have to talk about what we've seen. One of the things coming out of week one is just, is this... Is this Green Bay being bad? Is it going to be a season from hell? Has Rodgers submarine the season with his off-season drama and and now they're not going to be behind him and that kind of stuff? And we just had to go a couple more weeks and now we're a couple more months later and we go, that was weird that we thought that. Um, that's just how this stuff works. And if you extrapolate that out and look at a football season, we think, yeah, well, that's a long time. That's a season. But in actuality... It was it was 16 games. Now it's 17 games, but either one, it's small. It's just 17 games spread out over a few months. It's a very small sample size when you can look at it logically. I, I know the comparison is always made, but it's worth reiterating. If you carved out a four-game chunk or an eight-game chunk or a 17-game chunk from an NBA season or an NHL season or an MLB season, you would draw the most insane conclusions. You'd think that the Oklahoma City Thunder are the best team in basketball because they did this over four games. Or you would think that the Tampa Bay Lightning are the worst team in hockey because they bombed over these eight games or whatever. 
The point is, in those sports, we have a lot more time and information that comes to us. We have 82 games in hockey and basketball. We have 162 in baseball. So by the end of the season, we feel a little bit more comfortable saying, at the very least, I do think this team is good. Whether or not they win a championship, that's just a lot of that's luck. But we understand this team has proven itself to be pretty good. Now, in football, especially the NFL, it is not as simple as that because it's kind of how small sample sizes work. There's a lot of variance that goes into a small sample size. All the math nerds, they push up their glasses on their nose, they pull out their calculators, and they tell you this. And, and it's true. It's part of why the margins matter so much in football, more than in hockey or basketball or baseball. Because in those sports, the margins are not going to account for you making the playoffs. They will play a large role when you get into the playoffs. But in football, the margins can play a big role just getting you into the playoffs because there's only 17 games. And if you have a team that the margins go against them, a ref makes a bad call at the wrong time and, and they botch a fumble and the other team recovers it in a big pile when it's anybody's ball, that kind of stuff. Uh, you kick a field goal at the buzzer and you barely miss it. That would have won the game. That can swing a team from being 10 and 7 to being 7 and 10. The margins are very, 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 very small as I'm talking about every weekend after these NFL games take place. And it seems like I have a list of six of the games going, uh, if you swapped any of these 10 plays, the opposite side would have won. So now we think about this in terms of, of a little bit larger scale, but large is a relative term because we understand 17 games is actually a small sample size. That's an entire season in football. And so now we're getting to the point of the season. We have three weeks left. And I'm starting to feel a little bit more comfortable slotting teams into contenders and pretenders. And yet at the same time, as I'm also saying, you got to be honest with yourself and you got to understand the nature of this sport. There's always uh, little questions in my mind and just this constant tug of war that's going on where I think, I'm pretty sure this team is good, but I do know their flaws and I'm pretty sure this team might not be that good, but... I've been surprised in the past by teams that I did not think were that good, and then they end up winning the Super Bowl or making a big run. So in this NFL season, I'm going, I think that I know that Green Bay and Tampa and Dallas and the Chiefs and the Patriots, they're, they're in the contender category, and yet inevitably we will see those teams, uh, the vast majority of those teams lose sooner rather than later because that's what has to happen in order to narrow it down to two teams in a Super Bowl. Uh, on the bad side, I also go, I'm pretty comfortable saying that the Jets and the Lions and the Jaguars, they're not good. They're kind of the pretenders. And yet at the same time, you just go back to Sunday and I go, but the Lions, they, I mean, they did cram Arizona, who I was raving about two weeks ago and was the number one seed in the NFC. And there was nothing fluky about that game. They just outplayed them and they looked like the better team. So the margins, even between a team that two weeks ago was the best in football record-wise, and a team that is amongst the worst record-wise in football, uh, that's actually pretty close too. It gives you a better comprehension of just A, how close this stuff is, B, how much the margins matter, and C, when you extrapolate meaning from a very small sample size, just how crazy and sometimes illogical that kind of stuff can seem. If you took that from last week, you would say the Detroit Lions are really good at football and the Arizona Cardinals are not. One team will be in the playoffs and one will not, and it's the opposite of that. So it's time to start thinking about this particular concept because this is the time of year where I really like doing it. Three weeks to go, 
I'm thinking about who do I think has value to bet on in the playoffs, that kind of stuff. Uh, Who do I think has value to bet against? What is true right now for me in my mind that if I wrote down in that sports journal, I said, I feel very good about these 10 facts about the NFL season. And then when we revisit it in three weeks and the regular season has ended, how many of those will still ring true? It's just a process that I think is interesting and revealing and important because it reminds you a lot of this stuff changes. Uh, Fact of life, fact of sports. So the Kansas City Chiefs, they've already... They've already reminded me of this phenomenon this season. I've spoken about that a little bit on a past show. But they're probably the greatest case in point. Because if I wrote down in that sports journal at the start of the season, they would be on the truth of football list. This offense is going to ball out. Worst case scenario, I know this. And, and yet after, after week seven, the Chiefs are sitting there at three and four. They're coming off a hideous 27 to three loss to the Titans. They score three points on offense. Two weeks earlier, they're stomped by the Bills at home. It seemed kind of a changing of the guard moment. The Bills, who were in the AFC title game last year, coming into Kansas City, cramming them and saying, we're actually the new kingpins of this conference. They also had two losses in that stretch when they were 3-4 and four, that came down to simple margin stuff. The crazy Baltimore loss where Clyde Edwards-Alaire fumbles uh, with Kansas City in position to run the clock out and kick a game-winning field goal. And instead, Lamar Jackson gets the ball back and they go for it on fourth and short in their own territory to seal the game. And a loss to the Chargers, where Justin Herbert and that offense, they go for it a bunch on fourth down in the second half, and they get it again and again and again and again, and that ends up being the deciding factor in Chargers going into Kansas City and winning. So, after these seven games, uh, this is where uh, small sample size gets the best of me. And I go... I just can't, I, I just don't see it, you know? I'm, I'm ready to write this team off. Their defense is not good. Their offense, there's just something that looks kind of broken. They're, I don't know if this is a post-two-year Super Bowl malaise. I don't know what it is, but I just get this vibe with this team that I don't think that they're that good, and I don't feel comfortable uh, saying that they're going to be floating around at the end of the season and, and, and be a team that freaks me out in the AFC playoff picture. And that's funny because if you had came to me at that time and said, well, Chris, let's talk about this logically. You're a logical person. And I go, well, I know, but I've watched this. I've watched all seven games. I just don't feel it. You, the person with the logical brain, would have said, well, yeah, but this team has a lot of talent. Let's start there. That's always a thing. This is only seven games. That's small in the grand scheme of things. This also is a team that in the years that Steve Spagnuolo has coordinated them and also when he was with the Giants coordinating their defenses, they always get better as the year progresses on that side of the ball. And also, uh, if we want to talk variance, it's unlikely this offense is going to keep turning the ball over at a crazy rate that they're doing. Because if you break down a lot of these turnovers, they seem somewhat fluky. Mahomes throws a somewhat inaccurate pass, but it's not the worst. You know, it's a little bit behind or a little bit high. And instead of just maybe the receiver making a tough catch or just hitting off the hand and bouncing incomplete, you're getting these tip balls up in the air and then it's a pick or just strange stuff that sometimes goes into turnover margin within an individual game. So I swear I'm off, and now I'm sitting here in present day uh, after seven more games. You know, you split it into two seven-game sample sizes, and now I'm sitting on the opposite side, back where I would have said I would be at the start of the year in the old sports journal. Kansas City Chiefs, seven straight wins. They've been playing outstanding defense. That's the side of the ball that has carried them through this stretch. 
they're on the upward trend on offense. Still not back to the standards that we expect from them where it's game in, game out, but they're on the upward trend. Two really good games against the Raiders, a really good game on Thursday night last week against the Chargers. A game that if you make note of, real quick, uh, the Chargers go for it on fourth down a lot in that game and don't make any of them. And the talking heads freak out and it spurs this just boneheaded analytics uh, debate that there's there's just no, there's nobody in ESPN or Fox Sports that just wants to like discuss it with the, not even a lot of nuance that it deserves. It's just sometimes this is going to work, sometimes it's not. If you believe in the numbers, you trust that over the course of time, this will go your way. And that won't always manifest within an individual game. We've seen that in both Chargers, Chiefs games. Come down to the margins, the margins in the first, the Chiefs, or the Chargers make their fourth downs. In the second, they don't make any. That was the margin. Um, and sometimes that accounts for who wins and who loses. And then we get the game and we go, well, now we just, we, we think that the Chiefs are this much better than the Chargers and the Chiefs are, they've won seven straight games. They're doing all this stuff. And all that stuff is true. And I do believe that the Chiefs now, yeah, they're the team that should be the favorite in the AFC. Part of that is just simple luck kind of falling their way, which a lot of times turnover margin is just that. It's how many times you recover a ball when it's on the ground. Uh, It's the way that a ball is tipped in the air and whether it turns into an interception. You see that crazy interception on the Tuesday night uh, Eagles-Washington game when it bounces off of Dallas Goddard's ankle and pops up and somehow turns into an interception. That's just, you you can't prepare for that. That's just fate. That's random chance. So I come across this from Bill Barnwell of ESPN as he's talking about what's kind of happened during this stretch for the Chiefs. Um, here it goes. During their 3-4 and four start, they turned the ball over 17 times in seven games. Over their ensuing seven-game winning streak, they have cut that by more than half, giving the ball away only eight times across seven contests. Simultaneously, the Kansas City defense has started to force takeaways. After forcing seven during that 3-4 and four start, Tyron Matthew and co. have forced 18 over the past seven games. So you just see a complete flop there. Uh, minus 10 turnover margin, plus 10 turnover margin. It's not that simple, but it's kind of that simple. When you say, how was this team that has a lot of talent 3-4 and four during this seven-game stretch, and how was it 7-0 during this game stretch? That's a really big factor. So now we're back where we started. Kansas City as favorites in the AFC. And if you're going through the small sample size stuff, you go, which of these seven-game stretches is going to prove to be more revealing for the ultimate outcome of their season? Most people, and me included, would say it's this more recent stretch because if you're citing sample sizes, we have a larger uh, two-season stretch, actually three seasons now, where we know Kansas City is good at football and we know they can do that. Uh, And yet... Knowing that, we could also be sitting there and the Chiefs played their first playoff game and they turned the ball over four times and we go, ah, we kind of saw something about this team. And yeah, these are a little bit fluky, but sometimes that's the nature of these teams. You put the ball on the ground a lot and it's going to bite you in the ass. Or you keep throwing slightly inaccurate passes or more inaccurate and that's going to be a problem. So I mentioned the Bills and them going in and whomping on Kansas City earlier in this year. Uh, and, and I'll make a note. I, I like to constantly reassess in my mind what I think of the teams that I'm watching. Because it's interesting, but also from a gambling perspective, 
I like to try and find value in lines for games and also in futures and say, mm, this team at three and four, the Chiefs, this this is not what I did, uh, which if I'm going back and self-scouting myself, I should say, uh, you kind of missed a pretty good opportunity. But if you sit there and they're three and four and you say, ah, the margins went against them, they've had a lot of bad turnover luck, this probably will turn around, so maybe they're worth a bet on the AFC East, on the AFC, on the Super Bowl, that kind of stuff. That's part of why I like going through this in my mind. So I made the the opposite decision because earlier in the season, I was going over where I thought value was held and, and I thought the Bills were the team in the AFC. This is before they'd beaten Kansas City. And they're also a reminder how quickly my opinion can change on a football team. They would have been within the old truth journal earlier this season. Um, especially about week six, between week five and week six actually is when it was. Uh, and I actually want to read something that comes from Bill Barnwell again because uh, he and I see eye to eye on, on a lot of how just randomized this stuff is and also a lot of the comprehension that this sport is really chaotic and we can form opinions and scream and shout about them. And most times we ourselves will probably have different opinions at some point sooner rather than later. So this comes from uh, Bill Barnwell again of ESPN. When the Bills lined up to go for it on fourth and one from the three-yard line with 22 seconds left to go on Monday night football against the Titans in week six, it felt like they were about to ascend to the top of the AFC. A win over the Titans would have followed a blowout victory over the Chiefs and taken Buffalo to five and one. The Dolphins, Jaguars, and Jets, a combined three and 14 at the time, loomed after the upcoming bye. The arch-rival Patriots were floundering at 2-4. and four. Josh Allen, who was about to try to convert in short yardage, was 13-14 of 14 on fourth-and-one sneak attempts in his career. The Bills felt inevitable. End quote. Great sliding doors moment. Especially put very nicely there. Just what lay ahead of them, what did feel inevitable, which was the Bills getting that fourth-and-short inside the five, scoring a touchdown with virtually no time left on the clock to win the game, and then having a bunch of terrible teams in front of them. Uh, we know that's not how it played out. And if you pause that moment in time, I had the Bills on a Super Bowl ticket that I purchased earlier because I thought there was value there, and I was feeling, you know, patting myself on the back. Library brain, remember? Oh, I saw this coming. I'm so smart. I, I could totally tell the Kansas City Chiefs weren't going to be as good, and I knew the Bills were going to be good, and I'm the smartest person on planet Earth. That's how I'm feeling. And then Bills line gets submarined. Josh Allen kind of slips, falls. Don't get the fourth down, game over. And since then, it's been kind of a, a little bit of a tailspin relative to what we thought they were at the time, which is this is the best team in the AFC. They're complete. They can play defense, offense, great coaching staff, all that kind of stuff. Since then, they've, you know, they lose the Titans that night. Then they got four more losses tacked on there. One atrocious one against the Jaguars, one of those teams that you looked at and said, well, that's just an easy 3-0 stretch. There's no such thing as that in the NFL. Ask the Cardinals against the Lions on Sunday. And then they lose against good teams. They get pounded by the Colts. They lose in that crazy, weird Monday night game where nobody could throw the ball against the Patriots. And then they lose in an overtime game against the Buccaneers that comes down to the margins of how refs decided to call pass interference in that game. I spoke to that as soon as the game was over. So... Now I'm kind of on the opposite side of the fence, but if I'm being fair in the assessment, I'm going, yeah, there's there's identity questions popping up about this team, most notably about their ability to run the football and their ability to stop the run. At the same time, 
They still have a really big game against the Patriots this Sunday. If they win that, they're right back in the thick of things. And there's a lot of margin stuff that went into these losses. The Titans loss, slip on fourth down. The New England loss, crazy weird weather. Uh, One bust on a Damian Harris run and just an inability for the Bills to score in the red zone in that game. And it still comes down to the very end. The Buccaneers, it comes down to what the refs want to call at what particular time on pass interference. So you could either take it one of two ways. Uh, The Bills are on the descent. They're not that good. We were kind of lied to through that initial uh, small stretch, first five, six games. Or, yes, they do have flaws and warts, but we kind of knew some of that earlier. And the margins have gone against them, and there's not a lot of difference between them having two or three more wins on their record right now and everybody feeling like they're on top of the world. Um, the Patriots, they're a great case in point of this. The team that you know played into that small sample size overreaction or reaction, whatever you want to call it. I think it can probably only be maybe an overreaction in retrospect. Um, but Barnwell mentions that the Patriots were 2-6 and six in their first six games. That sample, they're left for dead. They had an ugly loss to the Saints in there, but they had three margin losses. Again, remember, these margin stuff is crazy. They lost by one point to the Dolphins in week one. Damien Harris fumbles inside of the 10-yard line right at the end of the game, it looks like. At worst, the Patriots are going to kick a field goal and force... Tagovailoa to try and drive down and kick a field to win. They have that crazy Sunday night game against the Buccaneers where Belichick elects to have Folt kick a long field goal in a rainstorm, 50-plus yards, uh, to try and win the game, and he misses. And then they have an overtime loss to the Cowboys. This crazy back-and-forth fourth quarter, who knows what, um, and Prescott throws a touchdown in overtime to win that game. Those are just, you flip one play, you flip this play, you flip that play, and those are three wins. Instead, they were three losses. So we bury them for dead because they don't look that good. We can't really see the vision because they're just kind of mucking it up. And since then, 7-1, and one, uh, kind of the toast of football going into Saturday. Their lone loss was to the Colts. But we have a good grasp now of this team, and we're back to, we're back to praising Belichick. We're back to saying, oh, this is, yeah, well, we're kind of stupid. We had a larger sample size. And... A lot of people maybe think that that was tied exclusively into Brady. And now maybe we're seeing, oh, this is kind of an all-encompassing sport. And when you have somebody in a position of coach that's good at what they do, uh, they can bring a lot to the table. Last year, the Patriots, they had half their roster sit out for COVID and they didn't really have a quarterback. And this year, they have a rookie quarterback who's performing reasonably well and they got everybody back and they signed a bunch of free agents. And now we're seeing the fruits of those labors. Um, I I mentioned the Colts. That'll be the last one that I'll mention for teams this season Um, in this small sample size uh, dissection, if you will, because they just, they've run the small sample gamut. They lose their first three games. They've lost four out of their first five games. But a lot of that stuff, it's, it's margin stuff again. You know, I think back to the Baltimore game on Monday night that it looks like the Chiefs or the, Colts are destined to win and crazy chain of events happens and the Ravens end up coming back and winning. So they're out of the playoff picture. We go, yeah, this team's bad. What are we doing? Carson Wentz, why did they even trade for him? That's stupid. And they're seven and two since then. 
And Saturday night, they're kind of the toast of the NFL world because they break the Patriots' seven-game winning streak. And they show off on an Island Nationals uh, game their newfound formula. Just the formula that has a lot of people starting to buy into the idea of them as a contender in the wide-open AFC. Amongst all these teams that we've flip-flopped a million times, myself included. The Chiefs, yeah, they're bad, they're good, they're bad, they're good. The Bills, bad, good, bad. The Patriots, bad, good. All these teams. We're going through it with the Colts. And so now I'm, you know, thinking about it myself and I'm going, I've watched all these games and I really like their identity and it makes sense in a playoff setting in a way that the Titans run to the AFC title game two years ago made sense. Pound the ball with Derrick Henry, play some defense, uh, and you can go a decent ways just doing that. And yet there's a large logical part of my brain that's going, I'm watching this stuff and I keep gravitating back towards the quarterback position in Carson Wentz. And I realize that this is not the position that we make it out to be, or everything is tied into it. At the same time, I'm going, is this truly somebody who you can win a handful of playoff games with? And I'm skeptical of that. Because I've watched those games, and especially on Saturday night, but as I'm watching Wentz do absolutely nothing in that game, and the Colts end up winning, I'm just going, I don't feel like I've watched him play very well in some time. So I'm looking at, you know, just what he's done recently and I look back over the last four Colts wins and I look at Wentz's stats and they're underwhelming to say the least. Against the Patriots, he's 5 for 12 for 57 yards, one touchdown and one interception. That's atrocious, obviously. They still win the game though, is the point. Because the Colts, they have that identity. Uh, The win prior to that against the Texans. He goes 16 for 22, 158 yards, one touchdown, no picks. Very uh, manageable stats. Manageable is probably the correct word there. Uh, kind of hints at that game manager role that you probably want within a Colts offense that's humming with Jonathan Taylor and a defense that's forcing turnovers all the time. Uh, the win prior against the Bills. He's 11 for 20 for 106 yards, one touchdown, no picks. The win prior against the Jaguars, he's 22 for 34, 180 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. So you start to see the Colts are winning and the quarterback is really not doing much to help that out. And maybe that is a sustainable formula, but I am always going to gravitate towards the other side based upon history and also just gut feeling when I watch. And I go, I don't know, it doesn't, you know, if I'm writing into a truth journal, This is probably going to be a little bit further down the list, but I know that it's not a great playoff recipe in my opinion. But I do know that you can definitely win without contributions at quarterback if you have a strong, solid identity in place. I do know that. I just think it makes it harder. And my question always is, how far can you actually take that? You have to be really, really, really good at your identity, which again, for the Colts, it's running the ball with Jonathan Taylor and it's just forcing unlimited turnovers with that defense, how far can that take you come playoff time? So we come back to small sample sizes. We understand there is an incredible amount of variance within one game, within four games, seven games, 17 games. And so all of this, it leads to grand conclusions. It leads to overreactions. And I am as prone to it as anybody. That's part of following this process. But what I think is important is understanding it in your mind. And being honest with yourself and say, I do believe this and it's based upon everything that I've watched and read and all that kind of stuff. But 
when I'm consuming media and when everybody's screaming on the TV show how this game proves that this team cannot win a Super Bowl and this game proves that this team can, that's where I get lost. That's where I feel uh, a little bit depressed that this is the nature of the way the sport is covered because it's never cut and dry like that. Uh, You can go back and look at every single season and it's just an ongoing process. It's the sports journal every single day and it's constantly changing and reassessing. And it's interesting to look at, to go back over the last few Super Bowl champions. I could do it for every single Super Bowl champion, but for the sake of time, I just went back and did the last four. And as I'm thinking about truth and how true it is at the particular moment and how that can change on a week-to-week basis or on a month-to-month basis, I went back and I go, oh yes, I remember all of this because I watched it and I read about it and I listened to podcasts about it. And I remember games and stretches of each season where the narrative and the discussion was, I'm not sure if this team is cut out for the job of winning a Super Bowl. You could do it with every single team that ends up winning a Super Bowl. This is kind of my point. This is why I get frustrated with coverage. Last year with the Bucks, they have a game earlier in the season. It's the Thursday nighter. They lose to the Bears. It's the Tom Brady meme when he's holding up the four fingers and he's forgotten what down it is at the end of the game. And we go, he's old. <laughs> get him out of here. Put him in an old folks home. He can't remember you know, what time Chuckarama's all-you-can-eat buffet actually starts at. He can't remember the down, all that kind of stuff. But there's a stretch of the season that starts in week nine. Sunday night football, they play the Saints. They lose 38-3, to just a bloodbath. And it kicks off a four-game stretch where the Bucks go one and three. Saints first, then they have a win, then they lose close game to the Rams, close game to the Chiefs. And it bumps them down to seven and five on the season. And I remember well at this time going, ah, yeah. Myself and the football watching public, I don't know. They're seven and five. Maybe they can sneak in the wild card, but I'm just not seeing, you know, I'm just not maybe seeing it here in a way that I'm seeing it with these other teams with the Rams and Sean McVay and the Chiefs. And wow, look how good Mahomes is. And oh man, the Saints, this defense is incredible. And Drew Brees, maybe it's his final season, all that kind of stuff. And we know how that ended. Uh, the Buccaneers, they, they, they actually end up being Super Bowl champions. <laughs> um, the year prior, 2019, Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl. From week five to week 10, they go two and four. It's interesting to note because there are three games in that stretch that they have to start Matt Moore. And they go two and one in those games. And in the three games in that stretch that Mahomes starts, they go 0 and three. So I remember this too at the time, one of those games against the Packers on Sunday night football when Moore's their starter and they play reasonably well. The Packers only win by a touchdown. And part of it, we're kind of celebrating uh, Andy Reid and going, man, look at this guy. He can just get, he can win with any quarterback. He can design a game plan. They're two and one with Matt Moore as their starter. And we're also watching him go two and four and Mahomes struggle a little bit. And we're going, "Ah, I don't know. Is this team just flash and dash? And when you truly need it in the playoffs and you got to grind out yards, can this team do it? And we know how that came, or we know how that played out. Chiefs, Super Bowl champions. Year prior, New England Patriots, 2018. They start the season one and two. They lose at Jacksonville, and they lose on a Sunday night football game at Detroit. Now, I remember that game very vividly because it's Tom Brady going against the former coordinator, defensive coordinator of the New England Patriots, Matt Patricia. New head coach there. And he designs this masterful game plan. It shuts down Brady. In that game, he goes 14 for 26 for 133 yards, one touchdown, one pick. 
New England is outgained by over 200 yards, 414 to 209. And I remember the narrative coming out of this. Oh my gosh, man, Matt Patricia, he might be a Belichick assistant that, you know, he's going to go on to big things. Look at this masterful game plan and maybe Detroit's got some things going on and maybe this dynasty, it's finally on its way out with the Patriots and, you know, Brady, he's looking a little old and who knows what's going on with Belichick. That's just the way that we talk about this stuff as it happens. And, you know, we know how that played out. New England Patriots get to the end of the year and they do what they always do. They win the Super Bowl. Um, it's interesting to make note of just the way that narrative and coverage has floated around the Patriots, even after Brady left. And we all kind of had a mini celebration for New England's demise in year one. And as I mentioned earlier on the show, maybe didn't account for what was there and what was not. Quarterback, uh, it's pretty hard to win with Cam Newton in present day. Look around to go ask the Carolina Panthers about that. But more importantly, it's really hard to put out a competitive defense when everybody sits out because it's a COVID year. Um, and now we're right back where we started. And we're going, we wrote down in the Truth Journal last year that we could just write off Belichick and the Patriots because Tom Brady left. And now we all think it was tied into him. And now we're going, uh, let's scratch that. We have a new truth in present day. Maybe Tom Brady is a good quarterback and maybe also Bill Belichick's really good at coaching and those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. The year prior, last one I'll mention, 2017 Eagles. And I had a, this was a moment of self-reflection for me when I'm trying to find value and when I'm trying to acknowledge, yeah, I'm wrong about this stuff a lot, stuff that I'm really convinced of. And I think that's important to note as you grow and try to just make sense of the world around you. 2017 Eagles, Carson Wentz gets injured in week 14. The time, Philly, they improve, they win, uh, they're playing the Rams, that's when he gets his leg mingled, and Philly goes to 11-2 and two on the season. And they end up winning their next two games with Nick Foles at quarterback, but second of those games, it's a Monday nighter against the Oakland Raiders, their Oakland at the time. It's on Christmas Day, actually. Coincidentally enough, with Christmas Day looming, um, so it's the island game, and I'm watching it, and I'm kind of mad because these two teams are just two puddles of barf at the time. And the Eagles end up winning the game 19-10, to but it's a very misleading final score, and I vividly remember watching this game. Uh, Jake Elliott, he ends up kicking a field goal to give Philly the lead with 22 seconds left, and then they score a defensive touchdown on the last play of the game to make the margin 19-10. to But the game was just tight the entire time. And Nick Foles within that game, amidst the puddle of barf, he was his own independent puddle of barf within it. It's like the oil floating on water. It was just a hideous performance. In that game, he's 19 for 38 for 163 yards, one touchdown, one pick. He's duffing passes into the ground. He's dunking them over people's heads. His completions, they're going for four yards at a time. It was just a game that in no way inspired anybody who was watching. And I remember after this game, I thought Philly had a very good team. I was sold on them completely as a Super Bowl contender with Wentz. But I'm watching that game, and I've watched two games at that point with Foles at quarterback, and I remember thinking and I remember saying, there's just no possible way this team can go anywhere with this quarterback. There's just no way. It's, you know, the, the margins are too uh, tight in the playoffs, and you need contributions from your quarterback, which they actually end up getting. But at the time, I'm going, you just, how is this turning around, you know? It seems hard who believe they could win even a playoff game, but it seems, it seems impossible. 
if I were writing in the Truth Journal. It seems impossible that this team could win a Super Bowl with Nick Foles at the helm. I just watched Monday Night Football, and it was abysmal. And a month later, the Eagles are celebrating a Super Bowl after beating the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. So maybe this sounds a little bit familiar because um, the team that I mentioned not too long ago. Uh, It's kind of maybe a a circle of life moment. You're thinking about it in those terms because Carson Wentz is now at Indianapolis and he is fielding the same questions with that team. This is part of the process of thinking your way through how your brain actually functions, which I, I find to be fascinating. Because now as I've been thinking about all this, I'm going, oh, that's interesting because now I'm thinking what I thought about Nick Foles and thinking that about Carson Wentz in present day, the quarterback that he replaced. And as we go through this process and make note of it and try to make sense of it, whatever you can, I go, yeah, maybe I will be right about Wentz and Foltz will need his services and he will not be able to perform. Or maybe I will be sitting here in a month with the Colts in the AFC title game or entering into the Super Bowl. And it will be another part of this process, of this journey, where I'm speaking right in this microphone and I'm saying there is something I believed in quite strongly four weeks ago that, as it turns out, I was completely wrong about. Thank you for listening to Sports with Chris Rawl. If you have any themes you would like me to explore or would like to contact me and connect in any way, please email me at chris at ceo.com. Again, thanks for listening.